This is the Communication Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. This podcast is a recording of the Melvin R. DeFleur Distinguished Lecture Series featuring Maxwell McCombs. The title is, Do the Media Tell Us What to Think About? The Psychology of Agenda Setting. Okay, uh, well, it's a, good, it's a great crowd. Thank you all for coming. Just a reminder, please turn off your cell phones. Uh, so that they don't interfere with the speaker system. Uh, we don't end up having buzzes and uh, cell phones basically going off here and there. Uh, welcome to the uh, Spring 2012 Melvin L. D. Fleur Distinguished Lecture organized by the Communication Research Center. My name is Michael Asmar and I'm director of the CRC. The, the Fleur Distinguished Lecture Series was named to honor Melvin L. D. Fleur as most of you know, De Fleur is a legendary figure in the world of mass communication theory and research. Today, I have the honor and privilege of introducing the 2012 Spring Melvin L. De Fleur Distinguished Lecturer, Professor Maxwell McCombs. Professor McCombs is internationally recognized for his research on the agenda-setting role of mass communication. Uh, it was in 1968 that Dr. McCombs, along with his uh, colleague, Don Shaw, coined the term agenda setting. Since then, more than 400 studies off agenda setting have been conducted worldwide. McCombs is the author of many books, and these have been translated into multiple languages and used worldwide as well. He is past president of the World Association for Public Opinion Research and a fellow of the International Communication Association. Professor McCombs has had a distinguished academic career Prior to joining the University of Texas faculty in 1985, he was the John Ben Snow Professor of Research at Syracuse University. He served for 10 years as director of the News Research Center of the American Newspaper Publishers Association. He's been on the faculties of the University of North Carolina and USCLA. His earliest work in mass communication was when he worked as a newspaper reporter in New Orleans. Currently, Max McCombs holds the Jesse H. Jones Centennial Chair in Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. Please help me in welcoming Professor McCombs. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a great pleasure for me to be here at Boston University. Uh, the city of Boston has a very special place in the history of my family. Uh, my wife, Betsy, went to college in Boston and my younger daughter, Leslie, was married in Boston. Uh, I can't claim anything quite that personal, uh, but I'm certainly going to claim this opportunity uh, to talk with you this afternoon about the agenda-setting role of the media uh, as a special part of my life, especially because I have this opportunity to talk to you about two interesting new aspects of the continuing research on the agenda-setting role of the media. By way of preface, let me talk about, for just a moment, uh, the core ideas uh, in agenda-setting theory. The intellectual father of agenda-setting is Walter Lippmann. Uh, Walter Lippmann's classic book, Public Opinion, 
published nearly a hundred years ago now, began with a chapter titled, The World Outside and the Pictures in Our Heads. And it was Lippmann's thesis, developed through anecdote and historical example, that the news media are the bridge between that world outside and the pictures in our head. And he also noted that public opinion is the response to the pictures in our heads. Hence, you see the link to the agenda setting role of the media. As Michael noted, uh, no one did very much with this idea, at least not in a very precise way, uh, for about the next 50 years. But in 1968, Donald Shaw and I, both uh, assistant professors at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill at that time, decided that we would try to test in a very precise way this connection between the news media's reports of the world outside and the pictures that people had in their heads. Our focus in the 1968 presidential election was on the key issues of the election, and we essentially compared uh, two aspects. We looked first, using content analysis, at what was the pattern of coverage in the news media that Chapel Hill voters used? What was that pattern of coverage about the issues of the day? Which issue received the most attention? which the second most, third, et cetera. In other words, we could rank order these issues, and in the jargon of agenda setting theory, in terms of the metaphor, that constituted the media's agenda. And I always hasten to say that the way the term agenda is used in agenda setting theory is a neutral descriptive term it is not the meaning of the word agenda as in the phrase to have an agenda. Uh, that is, the media's agenda is simply the pattern of coverage, in this case, of issues that has appeared in the media over some period of time. For the public agenda, you need to do some kind of poll or survey. And fortunately, at the time of the Chapel Hill study, there was already an excellent example in place, a question originated by the Gallup poll in the 1930s that went something like this. What do you think is the most important problem facing this country today? Shortened in the jargon now to the most important problem question, or the MIP, and we use this question among a sample of Chapel Hill voters to determine their agenda. That is, when you ask them this open-ended question, what issue was mentioned most, which issue was mentioned second most, which is third, etc. Again, you can rank order the issues, and then you can compare the two rank orders. And we found in that early uh, Chapel Hill study, a high degree of correspondence between the media's agenda and the public's agenda. And that, as Michael said, has subsequently led 
uh, to hundreds of studies as we pursued that lead about the linkage between the media's agenda and the subsequent public agenda. As the theories developed, uh, that type of study where you're looking at the issues or other topics on the media's agenda and the public agenda has come to be called first level agenda setting. First level because then by 1972 theoretically and by 76 in terms of actual empirical research we were looking further into the nature of the linkage between media coverage and the pictures in people's heads. When the media talk about an issue or a topic or uh, to use a, an abstract theoretical term, when they talk about an object, and here I'm using the term object as social psychology uses the term attitude object. The attitude object's whatever you have an opinion about. It could be a public issue, it could be a political figure, it could be an institution, whatever you want to measure a person's opinion about. Uh, the objects at the first level of agenda setting or whatever set of objects you might be interested in looking at. Because of our interest in public opinion and because of the history of public opinion, most agenda setting research has looked at agendas of issues, but we have also looked at other objects such as political figures or public institutions or in some countries, cases even countries. So, can be any set of objects you're interested in. Well, the advantage of speaking abstractly about objects is that objects have attributes. They have certain characteristics. That is, when the news media talk about some object, whatever it is, they don't just name the object. They also typically describe the object in some fashion. Uh, they tell you what some of its characteristics are. I think that's probably the easiest to see in the case of political candidates or public figures of the news reports, say, on the uh, presidential candidates in the Republican Party as they've gone through all these primaries, have reported a variety of attributes or characteristics of these candidates. It could be their stand on particular public issues. <coughs> it could be their experience. It could be other aspects of their background. It could be their personality. It could be a wide variety of attributes. And just as you can rank order the, the objects on the media and the public agenda to determine the degree of correspondence, it's also possible to rank order these attributes to look at the attribute of the agenda of the media, which again would come primarily from a content analysis of the news coverage. You can also measure the attribute agenda of the public. The question we came up with in 1976 to do this, which is still widely used, uh, is again an open-ended question. Uh, I'll use it in the current uh, political situation. 
Suppose you had a friend who had been away for a long time and knew nothing about Mitt Romney. What would you tell them? It's completely open-ended. Doesn't push you in any particular direction. You might talk about his political ideology. You might talk about his uh, background as governor of this state or in business. You might talk about his personality. You could go in many different directions. And again, the question is, to what degree does the attribute of the, uh, the agenda of the media correspond to the subsequent attribute agenda of the public? And again, the short answer is, there is a very, very high level of correspondence between the two. And this is called the second level of agenda setting, that is, attribute agenda setting, learning about key aspects of whatever object is on the agenda. Well, that's kind of the Cliff Notes version of about 40 years of agenda setting research. Uh, moving right along, <laughs> what I would like to talk to in, in a bit of detail this afternoon about is two new research arenas, exploring a third level of agenda setting effects, and then in terms of the public's response to all of these effects, new research on mapping the psychology of agenda setting. Let's start with the third level. Putting together the first and second levels, then a definition of well, what do we mean by agenda setting or what is agenda setting, then a general definition would be elements that are prominent in the media frequently become prominent among the public. These elements could be objects, first level agenda setting. They could be attributes, second level of agenda setting. As I describe the measurement of these, both at first level and second level, you'll note that in effect, say for first level, the issues on the agenda were pulled out of the coverage and we tallied them and made a list according to their frequency of occurrence. We essentially do the same thing from the Gallup question. Same thing for attribute agenda setting. That is, we remove these elements from their larger context and we simply tally the frequency with which they occur and we rank order them on that basis. That's what I mean in what the phrase you see on the screen. We are looking at discrete elements. They're taken one at a time in isolation. But in reality, these elements are bundled. That is, the typical news story about Bit Romney is not going to just mention one characteristic, one attribute. It's going to tell you probably about several. And then the question becomes, over a week's coverage or a month's coverage or many months' coverage now, how do, what kind of network, what kind of linkage occurs among these attributes? Which ones get mentioned together? 
which ones are kind of out there in isolation? You know, what, do the, what does the pattern of bundled attributes look like? <coughs> you can do the same thing, of course, for whatever set of objects you're interested in. Over some period of time, what are the objects that get bundled together that are mentioned together? Which are the ones that are out there in isolation? <coughs> and so as we move to the third level, our interest is in looking at these bundles of attributes, or what we now call the network model of agenda setting. And the research question here is, just as the media can transfer the salience of an object to the public, first level, can transfer the salience of an attribute to the public, second level, can the media transfer the salience of these networks to the public? That is, if we look at not just a discrete list of attributes, but at an entire network, to what extent does the public's network reproduce the media's network? <coughs> Our first step in exploring this new level, which was a little over a year ago now, was to go back to a study. We decided we would do this at the second level, at, at, at the level of attributes and that we would take a data set in which we had already found at the second level a significant level of correspondence between the public and the media. And that we'd re we would reanalyze the same data using network analysis, that that would give us some kind of benchmark for interpreting the network analysis results was it similar? Was it weaker? Was it stronger? Uh, what, what we, that is, we needed some standard of comparison. The study that Kihan Kam and I had originally done was based on two elections in Texas, and it was traditional ag attribute agenda setting research. We compared the media's attribute agenda of these candidates and the public's. And the overall correlation, as you see there, was 0.65, very substantial. When, we, when Lei Gao, a doctoral student at the University of Texas, and I reanalyzed this data using network analysis, the correlation's 0.67. Essentially, we obtained the same answer. So, that gave us some confidence that, uh, at least on a statistical basis, this gave us a very, very similar answer. We've also done one additional election study with new data, uh, the 2010 gubernatorial election in Texas, and there we got a correlation of 0.71, so it's in the same, same ballpark. As I said, statistically, they look very, very similar. But in terms of a qualitative comparison of the two, the network analysis is much the richer. So this is 
the network analysis network analysis not only gives you a number, a, a correlation, it draws a picture of the network. And you can see certain uh, attributes are in the core, uh, others are way out on the periphery. It's also possible to, uh, as you already know now, to correlate these networks. And so we not only find a high, high statistical comparison <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we have a much richer picture of what the interlinkages of these networks uh, look like. We've done one additional study since I pre actually prepared this uh, a presentation. Uh, deadline some of you are familiar with, the April 1 AEJ deadline. Uh, we made it uh, by about 24 hours. Uh, there we went back to first level and we took the Project for Excellence in Journalism's data on the main news stories week by week for three years, 2009, 2010, 2011, and we compared the patterns across those years with monthly Gallup polls across the three years, 36 national polls, and we did the analysis year by year. So within each year we had 52 weeks of PEJ uh, data from the news media, and we had 12 Gallup polls. And again, we're getting correlations of averaging about 0.6566. We're again in the same ballpark, uh, which again, uh, you know, is, is particularly intriguing to us and certainly encouraging uh, to continue on. Well, at this point, you also now know the full history of the investigation of the third level as of today. Uh, we do have several other projects in the works, including, uh, to me, a very fascinating international study looking at the attributes of the Iraq war coverage in 2003 and 2004 uh, in the United States and seven other countries around the world. Uh, so perhaps the next time we at least have a conversation, uh, we'll have a lot more uh, findings to talk about there. Well, the interesting aspect of, of the third level is beyond that it qualitatively leads us into a much richer look at both media and public agendas is that it brings together all of the different elements in agenda setting theory up to this point. That is, you can analyze sets of attributes, or you can analyze sets of objects, or ultimately we'll put all of this together and we will have a really large scale and rich picture of public opinion. If we tie all this back to Walter Lippmann's uh, book, Public Opinion, and particularly that phrase in the title of the opening chapter, the pictures in our heads, the original study in Chapel Hill and the other now first level studies of agenda setting in effect say, what are the pictures about? The second level of agenda setting, in effect, says, 
what are the main characteristics, what are the main attributes of those pictures. The third level gets us even closer to saying, what are the pictures? How does all this come together? And how does it impact the formation of public opinion? Okay, let me turn now to the second area, the psychology of agenda setting. Early in the history of agenda setting, David Weaver introduced a concept called need for orientation. <clears throat> Basically, the need for, idea of need for orientation is based on the idea that most individuals, when they find themselves in an unfamiliar situation, are a bit uncomfortable until they kind of orient themselves to their surroundings. And this could be as varied as the first time you came to this campus and you probably had no idea where most of the buildings or offices you needed to go to really were, or maybe even which buildings and offices you needed to go to. That is, you had a need for orientation. In the political sense, in an election, especially in primary elections where often the candidates at least at the beginning, are rather unfamiliar and unknown to many people. <clears throat> Voters have a need for orientation. Who are these people? What, what are their attributes? What, uh, you know, what would they do if they were elected to office? Need for orientation, as David Weaver introduced this concept, provides uh, is, well, first let me define it, uh, is defined in terms of two components, relevance and uncertainty. The key term is relevance. If you have a need for orientation towards something, it first of all says you think it's relevant. Most of us have no need for orientation at all toward any number of topics because we don't consider them relevant. That is, why do we skip over a lot of items in the newspaper every morning? Because we don't consider them relevant. I'm not interested in that. It's not relevant to me. The second component is uncertainty, and uncertainty is introduced only when relevance is high to further distinguish between the degree of need for orientation. Uh, but the key term is relevance. And both relevance and need for orientation have proven themselves quite useful over the years in the research done uh, since 1977 in identifying the level of agenda setting effects. That is, if a message is received by a public who finds it at best of low relevance, then the agenda setting impact of the media tends to be very low. On the other hand, if the relevance is very, very high, and particularly if uncertainty is also very, very high, then the level of agenda setting effects is very, very high. Typically, for instance, the correlations you've seen this afternoon are a mix 
of those, that is, of people who have low, moderate, and high levels of need for orientation. But the key in understanding the concept is the, is the component relevance. What do people find relevant? And what has appeared piecemeal over about the last dozen years are a series of studies that when viewed collectively form an interesting theoretical gestalt that furthers our understanding of this term relevance. What makes something relevant to an individual? To what extent then is information about that topic or attribute likely to produce an agenda-setting effect among the public. The benchmark to this gestalt, the anchor, if you will, uh, comes from a, an interesting study that uh, Dixie Evett and Sal McGannum did 11 years ago now, in which they identified three dimensions of relevance. That is, they did a series of experiments at Syracuse University in which uh, people were exposed to news stories about a wide variety of public issues and then they were asked to fill out uh, a battery of rating scales about how important they found them, how interesting, uh, whether they were boring or not, you know, a wide variety of uh, rating scales which they then factor analyzed and on the basis of the, this factor analysis involving a dozen or so issues and many, many different measures, they identified three dimensions of relevance. Personal relevance, social relevance, and emotional relevance. Social relevance is, I think, what we have largely assumed over the years when we ask people the Gallup MIP question. What's the most important problem facing this country today? It kind of assumes you want people to take a broad national perspective or social perspective and name a problem that's of relevance to the country, the one they think is the most relevant. But some people may indeed answer personal relevance. You know, if you're concerned about uh, if you're a parent with children in school and you're concerned about funding for public schools, your answer to that question, especially if it was put in a local context, might be education. It affects me. Uh, going to the other end of the scale, um, older people might say social security. You know, I am retired or I'm nearing retirement. I'm concerned about social security. The emotion, and, and we've been somewhat o aware of that for, for a period of time. And interestingly, about uh, two years after the uh, Evett and Ghanem study, Fermin Boza, a sociologist uh, in Spain, quite independent uh, of this, of the uh, Evett and Ghanem research, came up with the idea of personal relevance and social relevance and how they intersect to produce agenda-setting effects. And he did it in terms of a Venn diagram. So if you imagine one circle that's personal relevance, 
and a second circle that's social relevance, and then you overlap them. He called that overlap area the impact area and said issues appearing in the media that have both of those motives driving them among the public will be the ones that really drive public opinion. So a very much related idea. Uh, the contribution of emotional relevance was essentially new in the literature. No one had really talked much about emotion as a separate and distinct a dimension, certainly not of agenda setting, and very little in public opinion research. Interestingly, about uh, three years ago now, I was uh, looking at exactly this research and preparing a lecture uh, for a class I was going to give at the University of Vienna. And I was on an airplane at the time, which meant I didn't have access to any books or anything. And I thought, you know, this is somewhat similar to a study I had done back in uh, the 90s. I couldn't even remember exactly which year that approached this idea of relevance from a very different direction. I wonder how these two studies fit together. The earlier study that I had done was a follow-up to the Gallup-MIP question. You know, it occurred to me one day, well, we've been asking the Gallup-MIP question for years, and people name an issue. Nobody ever bothered to say, why'd you name that issue? The kind of you'd think obvious follow-up question, but no one had ever done that. And I thought, well, there must be some psychological scales out there that uh, political psychologists have done that I can use to measure this. Uh, because if you just ask people an open-ended question, why, uh, you often don't get terribly good answers. Well, I couldn't find the scales, so I ended up creating some of my own and measuring a series of motives of why people might have named a particular issue. So after we asked them what's the most important problem in the statewide survey in Texas, the next part said, now I'm going to read some of the reasons that other people have named that issue. How much does each one of these apply to you? Not at all, somewhat, a great deal. And so on that basis, I was able to identify five different motives or sources of relevance, and they seem to fit very nicely with the Ghanem and Eva categories. Personal relevance, we found self-interest. Some people do indeed, and when you say, was it because of self-interest? Yes, it was. For other people, interest in an issue and why they name it as the MIP is what I call avocation. They're simply just interested in that issue. For some people, the environment is that kind of issue. Doesn't impact them personally. They think they're more important other issues affecting the country overall, but they're really interested in the environment. So personal relevance, self-interest, or avocation. Social relevance, 
civic duty, or peer influence. One very broad, one very narrow, and again, an emotional arousal measure. That there are issues that for some people emotionally arouse them. They, they really just get very worked up over these particular issues. So that further you know, puts some, uh, as it were, meat on the bones uh, of what we mean by personal relevance and social relevance. Then pursuing the idea of personal relevance, one more step, uh, Sebastian Valenzuela uh, in 2010 uh, became very interested in Ronald Engelhardt's scales of materialistic and post-materialistic values. Uh, I won't go into a long description of those. Uh, materialistic values, as uh, Engelhardt talks about them, would be an interest in, for instance, security, health, etc. So if you're thinking of uh, public issues, you know, it's in public safety, public well-being. Post-materialistic values, uh, the environment certainly uh, falls in, in that area in Engelhardt's work. <coughs> Sebastian uh, found two interesting data sets, uh, which he could do secondary analysis in Canada. One was a uh, countrywide national study in Canada of an election which indeed had measured the Engelhardt values. So you could look at, you could in effect assign each voter to one or the other categories. There were a few people who were kind of in the middle, they weren't either, but most people were either materialistic or post-materialistic. He also found a content analysis of the major newspapers across Canada uh, reporting the major issues, the media's agenda of issues, if you will, during that election. It was very obvious from the content analysis that the media's agenda was a very, very, the Canadian media agenda was very, very materialistic. Uh, he then looked at the degree of correspondence between the materialistic voters' agenda, because the Canadian election study also had asked the MIP question. So you have the issue agenda of materialistic voters, the issue agenda of post-materialistic voters, and the media's agenda. The high degree of correspondence is, of course, materialistic voters much more closely followed the media's agenda than did post-materialistic voters. <coughs> Going to emotional relevance and getting closer to home, Joanne Miller, who's an experimental psychologist uh, on the political science faculty at Minnesota, uh, did an interesting agenda-setting experiment a few years ago looking at specific emotions as mediators of agenda-setting effects. That is, if exposure to a particular item on the, in the media makes you happy, makes you sad, or makes you afraid, uh, she measured a half dozen different specific emotions, does the 
arousal of that specific emotion, and she also tried combinations of them, but does the arousal of that specific emotion heighten the agenda setting effect of the media, or possibly it could retard the agenda setting effect of the media? She basically found that, and she was doing looking at crime stories, that if the crime coverage in the experiment made you afraid or it made you sad, that this heightened the agenda setting effects. So if the emotional response was to be, be sad or afraid, strong effects, if it did not have that emotional effect on you, much weaker effects. And for all the other emotions uh, she measured, they simply didn't have any impact whatsoever. Coming very close to home, this room, uh, Renita Coleman, who's on the Texas faculty, and Dennis Wu, who's sitting here in the front row, uh, recently published in 2010 an interesting uh, study analyzing two dimensions of affective attributes. That is, when we talk about affective attributes, I'd simply describe the substance to, of those attributes to you. You know, a person's uh, political ideology or their background or, or personality. But of course, most Frequently, when those attributes are reported in the media, and even more often when we ask people what they would tell their friend, those attributes have affective weights. They are presented in a positive, negative, sometimes neutral way, but most frequently in a positive or negative way. That is, uh, the second dimension of uh, attributes is their affect. And uh, Coleman and Wu's study identified uh, and further explicated this idea of an affective attribute, that it could be a simple cognitive evaluation. It's po I think it's positive, I think it's negative, but it also has a strictly emotional component that is quite separate from that label of positive or negative. Uh, you have the expert here. You can ask uh, more about that. I think that's a particularly promising lead uh, in this area. So what has evolved over a dozen years now is uh, a theoretical gestalt in refining in many ways, explicating in much greater detail the component of relevance, which we know from decades of research, uh, helps explain the magnitude of agenda setting effects. Uh, now we have a dozen leads here on uh, how to further understand exactly how people do respond uh, to these messages of the media of why they come to regard, for example, some issues as important uh, and why, uh, at the other extreme, uh, they often ignore issues despite uh, the media's emphasis upon them. So I think the frontier for agenda-setting research is, uh, is an exciting one. 
Uh, we've opened, I think, some important new doors. Uh, there are a lot of interesting uh, new routes to explore, uh, to fit not just to political coverage, uh, but to a wide variety of news coverage on many topics. And I urge you to follow that uh, road. And I will end with a quote from one of my favorite fictional characters, Sherlock Holmes, who often began a new case by saying, come Watson, come, the game is afoot. Thank you very much. This has been a Communication Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. For more information about the Communication Research Center, please go to www.bu.edu slash com slash crc. Thank you.